that really unlocked for me this idea that if we wanted to approach this conflict in a peacemaking way, not only did we need to submit to local ideas, but we had to submit to the idea that the, the conflict lay in the individual choice of each and every member of the militia. That's Charles Davidson describing a key understanding which shaped his thinking on the critical motivational forces of members of armed groups and, consequently, the approaches which can successfully achieve disarmament, demobilization, and the reintegration of those individuals to create durable peace. Charles directs the Political Leadership Academy and his research faculty at George Mason University's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. He's also a scholar practitioner of conflict resolution, focusing on civil war, insurgency, and vulnerable populations, with over a decade of experience in economic peacebuilding in war-torn countries, working most recently in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, and previously in Iraq, Afghanistan, Uganda, Colombia, and Burundi. Charles is also founder and president of Innovations in Peacebuilding. Its mission is to cultivate peace by accompanying local peacebuilding practice, peace education, connecting peacebuilders, and scholarly praxis. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, and in this episode of Conflict, Power, and Persuasion, Charles takes us behind the scenes of the genesis and implementation of what he describes as a hybrid peace process which led to the signing of a peace agreement by 21 armed groups, civil society leaders, and the Congolese government. Let's hear from Charles now. This is Conflict, Power, and Persuasion, podcast of the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. Hi, Charles. Thanks a lot for joining me. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself uh, and your interest in peacebuilding? I got interested in thinking about peace differently from a fairly young age. Um, when I was 20 years old, maybe 20, 21 ish, um, I went on a kind of a cultural immersion trip, uh, to Bolivia and found myself, um, at a prison in, in, in La Paz where there were like families living in this prison as, um, when adults, get incarcerated at that time, uh, a lot of children were going with them uh, into the prison because there was nowhere else for them to be. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of children paying the price yeah. of their parents' crimes. And so I came back and it was like 15 years ago. And uh, I had just really started using Google like for search engine stuff. And, and I Googled children paying the price of their parents' crimes. And uh, what the search result um, came up was war zone after war zone after war zone of kind of just this like unmitigated injustice. And uh, I sort of saw a life path that I felt would be worth pursuing in that moment. And so I went to my mentor at the time and said, I think I want to build peace for a living. Like I want to do this with my life. And he said, what do you know about building peace internationally? <laughs> I said, well, uh, not much. And he said, great, then you need to leave and you need to not come back until you know more about what's happening around the world. And so I was single, I was young, I was broke, uh, but I had kind of a vision for going out and learning about what was being done to attempt to um, you know, build peace around the world, especially among like vulnerable populations. And Every time I could get enough money scraped together for a plane ticket, I would I would go and you know travel to 
various conflict affected places around the world. And when I would get there, you know, I would, I would connect with people on the ground and, you know, try to learn from them what they were doing and, and try to, you know, get exposed to as much on the ground effort as was happening that I could, that I could, you know, bear witness to. And that, that portion of my life lasted, you know, like three years. I wound up going to Iraq a few times. I took a job teaching English in Afghanistan. I was in Bogota, Colombia, went to Lebanon, Uganda. Um, and in each place, each location, I was met with like this overwhelming sense as a human that I was just interacting with humans. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's silly to say it out loud, but like we're so often we're tempted to, to define war-torn countries and their inhabitants by the war that is the only thing that makes the news in our country. But, um, but what I learned was, you know, every step along the way, I would go to weddings and, and I would go, you know, to restaurants and go to cultural events and concerts. And, and, and what I found was that, it, you know, it didn't matter where I went in the whole world. People all basically are pursuing the same thing, you know, happiness, love, humor, good food, the ability to please God if, if they're, you know, of religious persuasion and to die a sleepy, peaceful death in their late 90s. You know, <laughs> that's what people want. Um, and so I got really struck with this idea that if peace was going to be pursued differently, it, it had to be oriented around not only the humanity of people living in conflict-affected areas, but it had to be oriented through their ideas, their perception of peace, and, and, and it had to follow the guidelines of what they were pursuing for themselves. And if we as outsiders wanted to get involved, it needed to be more as an accompaniment rather than, you know, bringing outside ideas and telling them what they needed as this sort of, you know, white savior or, or patriarchal, neo-colonial, call it what you want, um, ideas really needed to, 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 to conclude because, you know, I just saw so much waste um, going on around me um, when, you know, there were local people who had fantastic ideas, but they just didn't have anybody to listen to them. So, um, that's, that's where it all kind of started. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. That sounds like some great experiences and time well spent. What marked the transition from, uh, wandering the globe, uh, to settling down into, uh, academia. So I got, um, I got married at 25 and my wife was very much interested in the work that I was doing and she herself got involved. And, you know, after years of, as it were, learning, um, I had started my organization, Innovations and Peacebuilding International, and um, I had kind of, you know, unapologetically invested all that time into practical learning and, and observing around the world. Um, but then she and I and a couple people um, launched our first attempt at accompanying locals in peacebuilding efforts uh, in, in northern Iraq, um, an area known as Kurdistan. And we managed to pull it off. Uh, and it's rumored that it's actually still open, but we've long since lost contact because we, you know, we accompanied this, this effort and, and we totally turned it over to the local people. Um, but it was a subsidized daycare program for internally displaced women and children, especially who had lost the wage earner, you know, either father or brothers or, or other people and had fled the conflict up into the safer regions of Northern Iraq. But um, because the women did not have jobs, they couldn't afford childcare, but because they couldn't afford childcare, they couldn't get a job. So they're kind of stuck in the cycle. And so um, we, we launched that 
And a few things occurred to me. Um, number one was when I got knee deep into doing this myself with my team, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I really needed to get a formal education beyond my bachelor's degree in international relations and beyond the practical experience that I had. But I needed to really start drilling down towards getting like really specialized in terms of um, being able to analyze these situations. So um, the other thing I realized was that if I was going to do this, it had to be um, under the auspices of it being kind of self-perpetuating. So thinking reproducibly about peace building ideas rather than going in and starting one thing and leaving as I, it, uh, it didn't seem like a sustainable model. So I, I went back, we, we successfully launched the thing in Iraq and went home, applied to a graduate degree in anthropology at the University of Arkansas, completed that. And along the way, during that time, we launched um, several projects in Uganda and then in Burundi. And while I was in the midst of that, my organization was growing and we, you know, we're seeing success, seeing this reproducible um, model really take hold in those two places, um, especially in Uganda. I went to a conference in Washington, D.C., academic conference, where I sat in and watched a panel where every academic there was discussing conflict resolution. And it, I didn't know, like as a young scholar, I'm like, I didn't know that you could specialize in the study of conflict. And so I, I went up to a woman whose presentation I particularly enjoyed. And I said, I want to do what you do at the academic level. <laughs> um, how do I do that? And she's like, oh, well, you need to go to George Mason University. Um, their, their school for conflict analysis and resolution is the best in the world. And they get to do anything they want after they graduate. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so I... I went home and, you know, pulled up the application. It was like highly competitive. You know, they only accept 12 people per cohort and like over 200 people were applying. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And when they tell me no, I'll move on. But indeed they said yes. And I just, it, it radically changed my trajectory. And so my wife and I moved out here and um, I, I started the PhD at what amounted to my, my dream organization. And um finished that in 2019, but, but earning the PhD really like helped orient me towards this idea that the most effective approach to international local peace building hybridity um, needed to be at the intersection of research and practice um, known as praxis. Uh, this idea that, you know, classroom learning informs practice, but then on the ground field work, practice informs in the classroom learning. Um, right. So it's kind of this beautiful cycle. And so that's what led me to you know, today where I, you know, we really champion this idea of the intersection of the international and the local and the intersection of, of research and practice. Um, and that led us to the Congo uh, where we're working today, which I'd happily discuss more about later. Yeah, I want to get into the Congo, but be before we do, you mentioned the model you were using and how it's uh, replicable. What was it specifically uh and was the approach used in burundi and uganda the same as what you're doing in iraq no that's a great question so so no we were we were really committed to the idea that we weren't going to bring ideas in we wanted to hear from locals and at the time you know this joseph coney 2012 movement with invisible children was really in vogue and um, our attention was drawn to uganda for those reasons um to you know really try to push into a more you know sustainable peace in that country. So I met a fairly prominent Ugandan pastor who both directed an, uh, an orphanage 
um, an academy for vulnerable uh, young people and children, but it was also connected heavily to a network of other pastors who had taken it upon themselves to, um, to, to care for and, and provide sustainable futures for orphaned Ugandan children. But their main problem was that they didn't have uh, super sustainable sources of income to provide for these kids that were left orphaned either because of the war or because of HIV AIDS or just poverty or, or whatever. And so we started a series of reproducible poultry farms where the idea was um, we would plant four main um, kind of like hub farms at these four major um, uh, orphanage and academies. And then the, the responsibility would be that we, you know, we would donate these first four, but then they were, they agreed to reproduce and start more chicken farms as they, as theirs grew. So it was just sort of this, like a, this idea that, that success could be shared. And, you know, I, again, we, we let these projects go once they get successful, uh, successfully founded. He, they had, they had started giving, you know, chickens to like local communities and it wasn't just around, you know, orphanages, you know, even sometimes they would give them to vulnerable families who needed a source of income we were told that that model, if you count like giving to families, um, that it reproduced over a hundred times. Like there were a hundred grants of chicken farms or, you know, just, just a, a flock of birds being given a wow. uh, hundred times over. So that was a wildly successful <clears throat> model that transitioned into Burundi where we weren't quite as successful, but the idea still stood around um, livestock, cattle, things like that, especially among um, women's savings and loan groups um, out in their communities. Um, but it was at that point that we turned our eye to the Congo and we had to sort of, you know, reassess our organizational aim, right? Because what we had kind of pigeonholed ourselves into was while our, our projects were successful, it, it was starting to resemble more of just economic developments, you know, at, at smaller levels, we were doing it in places that had experienced conflict and maybe were even, you know, experiencing active conflict in some places. But at the conclusion of my master's degree and getting into like professional peace building, we, we stepped back and reassessed and we thought, do we want to be a development NGO in conflicted places or do we want to be a peacemaking organization? And those are very, two very different yeah. ideas that you can use economics as a means to an end, you know, economic peace building. But we all decided that we really wanted to tackle the challenges associated directly with violent conflict um, in both, you know, providing paths out of fighting groups for um, militia members, but also, you know, getting involved in the act of peacemaking. And so the Congo seemed like the next best place for that. We had contacts and stuff. And so, um, I'll happily talk about that now if you, if you want me to, or we can discuss it later. Yeah, let's get into the Congo then. Um, yeah, maybe you can just start with the big picture here of the, the conflict for people that aren't aware of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. it's <laughs> Well, if we have 14 hours, I can yeah. I can really discuss the, the Congolese conflict. But um, no, it's, it's one of the more intractable, convoluted uh, conflicts to define because because really the Congo is not like when you talk about the Congolese conflict, that's kind of an inaccurate statement because it's not one thing. It's many, many, many different things where violence has become the answer to several agendas across a, an area that is just enormous. Like nobody understands how big the Congo is until you're there. And you realize that not only does like the length of it 
span like the length of Europe uh, from from farthest end to farthest end, but there are there are hardly any roads at all. And so like every you know everyone is afoot or you know riding in Ukrainian helicopters or something like that. And so to speak about the conflict in the Congo is is a very um, it requires a lot of nuance and and like regional and even local understanding of why violence is being employed. Um, so much so that like you know you'll be in South Kivu and in like the southern part of South Kivu and the conflict there among Bani Mulenge and Mai Mai um, armed groups is, is incredibly different than the north part of South Kivu. And so we're just talking about one province, which is a fairly small, relatively speaking, province. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the, the government was, uh, is, is highly unavailable in the eastern part of the Congo because you, you cannot get to the eastern part of the Congo from Kinshasa without being on an aircraft. Um, so they, they lack control out there. And then what especially destabilized the Congo was um, the Hutu-Tutsi conflict that originated in Rwanda, you know, famously with, with the horrific events of 1994. But that conflict did not stay within its borders. Everybody sort of knows and can talk about the Rwandan genocide. But, but what happened afterwards is what continued to develop conflict around the, the region when the Tutsis eventually, you know, rather quickly regained control in, in Kigali, um, sent many Hutu um, fleeing out of their country and, and into other places. And this sparked a series of civil wars um, around and interstate wars around the, the region, which, um, you know, led to economic breakdowns, socio-structural breakdowns that continue to plague the region today. And, and, you know, anybody who knows anything about Congolese conflict is going to listen to me saying that and be like, well, that's hyper simplified, you know, and it is, it's hyper simplified. Sure. I, I, can't, I can go on forever, but. Right. Um, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I think that's a sort of highlights the complexity of it, even with yeah. the geographical constraints there that yeah. getting around one now. That's interesting. Um, well, let's talk about your work there. Where should we start? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly poetic start for us uh, as, it, as it goes. Um, we looked, we were in Burundi, and you, you can literally look across the lake from Bujumbura and see the Congo, these big, huge mountains. And we just thought, you know, what would it be like to actually put our money where our mouth is with regard to wanting to make this transition toward a peacemaking organization and go into a place that's an active, you know, conflict zone, a place that felt very foreign to us. At the time, and so we reached out to different contacts in the area who could get us into the Congo, you know, safely meet with people who were trying to do, um, you know, local people trying to do peaceful things. And we set a date to travel there in 2015 for the first time. And about three days before I was to leave, I got an email from a group of former child soldiers who had started their own peacebuilding NGO. And they said, we see from your website that you're coming to the Congo uh, or that you're coming to South Kivu. We would love to meet with you and chat about what we're doing also. And I thought, wow, that's kind of random, but that's, that's awfully bold. So, uh, and their story, their, 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 really their drive really intrigued me as former child combatants turned peace, local peace builders. So I said, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, let's meet. And so 24 hours went by and they they got back to me and they said we're looking forward to seeing you oh by the way we've told the militia leaders in our area that you're coming they want to meet with you also <laughs> i was like why did you why why did you do that <laughs> like, you know, i the one thing i had going for me is a little bit of anonymity and, and you know people not knowing my plans but so you just went ahead and told everybody i was coming 
And they said, no, no, there's nothing to worry about. You know, they're not, they're, they're gathering for peaceful reasons. They're, they're, we are gathering them to talk about sensitization in not recruiting young people to their groups and, and, you know, encouraging young people to leave the groups, et cetera. And they're there peacefully. They, and they just want to hear from you and your thoughts on the situation. And I was like, man, uh, okay. I, you know, at the time I, I felt really, you know, ill-prepared. I guess like, who am I to speak to this? I, I've never even been to South Kivu, um, but they were requesting it. And I think that, you know, having an outsider come can, can bring a, a sense of notoriety to the process. And I was happy to kind of play that role, even though I was totally ill-equipped to do so. And so we, we got to South Kivu and I met them and I was utterly struck at, you know, their efficiency and the, the efficacy with which they were performing their work. And we got into a land cruiser and drove out of the city of Uvira toward this meeting hall, uh, way out in the bush in a village called Lubarica to meet these, to meet this, you know, dozen or so members of these armed groups. As we were driving out, um, our land cruiser got stuck <laughs> in the mud. <laughs> and these are four-wheel drive vehicles made for this very thing and i'm like what in the world is going on and we are out in the middle of nowhere That's and i was a bit nervous go ahead ner- yeah nerve-wracking um it, yeah can can you just help me with the timeline then this you're an independent sure. organization here going in you're not connected this isn't through your phd work at george mason this is right so this is after your phd then or Good question. No, actually, so this first time was actually the same month that I had moved to Washington, D.C. to start my Ph.D. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, no, it was my independent organization. Indeed, it was really just me because I when we're when we do things in places that are unpredictable where, you know, we don't have solid context. I go by myself typically because it's a lot easier to react quickly and there's a lot less risk on other people coming with me. So I, I'm always, I try to serve as like the harbinger of the, the organization to go in and do it by myself the first time. Hey. Um, so you're so alone and stuck in the mud. Yeah. Yeah. And I to, actually, to be clear, that's, that is inaccurate. I do have um, an individual named Remy Singyumba who is a Burundian who has been working um, with my organization for yeah, like seven or eight years and along the way, he started accompanying me on these initial trips. Um, and so actually on this trip, he w- was with me. So I, it, it's false to say that I was alone. Remy was there. He has actually become like uh, I, my organization's number one leader in Africa. Like he, he's the leader of all things we do in Africa. And so we get out of the car and we realize that like, we're sort of like right in the middle. Like we, we either walk into the bush for I don't know how long to get to this village, you know, it probably would have taken a few hours or we could walk back to Uvira, but down the highway, which is like notoriously dangerous for, you know, the presence of highwaymen and, and militias and stuff getting, you know, being kidnapped or robbed or, or even accidentally killed is, was not out of the question. So um, we just sort of sat there and we were in sort of a like grassy plains and a few minutes went by as we were trying to push and rock the vehicle and put stones underneath the tires. And all of a sudden we see people just coming out of nowhere, seemingly from every direction. Um, women in brightly colored Congolese traditional clothing and men in muck boots and kids um, 
from every direction, just like walking quietly and calmly toward us. And without saying much, they gathered around the Land Cruiser and just started helping us, you know, 10 or 12 people pushing this vehicle and rocking it back and forth and um, really just ruining their clothes. And they didn't ask for anything and, and it worked. And we all shook hands and smiled and thanked them. And then they just left. (laughs) And it occurred to me, I'm like, man, once again, I find myself among humanity, like my fellow human beings Mm. who yet again, even in my own mind at that time, were defined by the conflict that plagued them, not by their, their individual virtues and agency that they indeed each possessed. And that was a check for me in my own mind, like, you're breaking your own rule here. Yes, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yes, you're in, you know, some of the most hotly contested land in the entire world. Um, but it is populated with a majority human beings, you know. And so, um, I was really struck by that. And we got out to the village eventually and met with these rebel group leaders, which is inaccurate. It's more accurate to say armed group leaders. Most of them aren't rebelling against the government. And what was interesting was that there was a there was a contingency of the Congolese military and police who were there among them. Why are they not battling one another? And, and it was basically, you know, the, the beef isn't with the government and it's sort of a mutually assured destruction thing here. So everything stays peaceful. And I, I have always, no matter where I've gone in the world, I've always been a bit frightened, uh, not frightened, but just I'm, I'm cautious around military, police, et cetera, just because, you know, things like extortion and um, bribery and whatnot. And we get in the car to leave and we realize that our driver had locked his keys in the car. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, and so hmm. we're trying all these different things, you know, trying to push down the windows, like lodge sticks and whatnot and trying to get it open. All of a sudden I heard something behind me. I turned around and a soldier had his gun pointed at me. I was like, Oh no, like this is kind of what I, I feared. <laughs> he said something in his local language and somebody said something and it got translated to French. And so I finally understood he, he just wanted me to step aside so he could use his bayonet to pry open the door. Right. And, and like, yet again, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, it, so even, even these military uh, members and, and police, like, again, we're just mm-hmm. dealing with humans yeah. and as human saw another human in, in need. And so he, he helped, helped us get our keys out of the car and um, we shook everybody's hand and, and, you know, don't get me wrong, right? Like we're still working with violent actors. These, these people commit heinous acts against their fellow humans. This, I'm not trying to romanticize the plight of the armed group in the, in the Congo. They, they, they still are doing bad things. However, that trip in a, in a distinctly undeniable way illuminated for me that in, indeed not only are these conflicts populated by people, but it's people who are all making, in their minds, the best decision for them that they know how at that moment. They, they analyze their resources, they analyze their opportunities, and they say, this is what I need to proceed. They're, they're not agency-less. They, they don't make decisions without due consideration in their own mind. It's not the best decision, right? But it is a decision. And so that really unlocked for me this idea that if we wanted to approach this conflict in a peacemaking way, not only did we need to submit to local ideas, but we had to submit to the idea that the the conflict lay in the individual choice of each and every member of the militia. And what we learned was so many, and this isn't the case everywhere, right? Like, like, don't get me wrong. Child soldiers are 
oftentimes abducted, they're kidnapped, they're forced to kill their families, right? But that's not the situation that we were in in the Congo. This, that happens elsewhere. It wasn't in this particular area. And so what we came to learn by just talking to these young men and these young women, you know, many of whom who had actually been in these armed groups is that, um, you know, there's a certain overlay of Congolese societal expectations in their villages through their traditions, through their religion, through their economics, their family structures, that young men, just like young men everywhere, desire respect. But to seek that respect in Congolese society demands that you have a job, that you um, you are seen as an upstanding member of your community, that you get married, um, that you provide for your family, you have children, and what you see so often, especially in the past 30 years, amidst this conflict and poverty and constant raids on your villages and, you know, no education is that young men get, and, and by young men, I mean boys, right? They get to this stage 11, 12, 13, where they see, you know, maybe their, their dad is dead. Um, their mom is sick. Their sisters are uh, not going to school and, you know, they don't have money for medicine. They don't have money for education. And he starts to see, I'm not going to school. I'm not going to get, you know, th- that source of respect for myself. And oh, by the way, my older brother, he left and is telling me that there's respect at the other end of this AK-47, right? That like people will respect me yeah. if I pick up this gun. <clears throat> and so it, instant power, instant provision, you know? And so, yeah, many of them choose that route toward respect. And it's not unlike gangs in the United States. It's not unlike many other, you know, decisions that people are making around the world every single day. Um, and so we, from that moment, started our peacemaking efforts through an initiative that provided um, direct paths out financially for any child soldier who wanted to leave their group. We did it through, um, <laughs> of all things, two pregnant goats. <laughs> uh, it's this breed of goat that almost always twins. And so anytime a a kid wanted to leave, they would be enveloped not only into their communities and within the structures of the organization that we're working with for psychological reintegration, communal reintegration, these ideas of like demobilizing in every sense of the word. But then they were also given a leg up with these two goats that immediately served as a financial source of income because two became six and and a few, couple, maybe a year later, they would continue to grow. And, And we see we saw um, for several years this this mode of demobilization working incredibly well. It was so in, so inspiring. There was a, a young woman who left the groups, was given goats, and um, did incredibly well. She wound up putting herself through vocational school to become a seamstress and um, wound up acquiring a sewing machine. And it, it, it's a longer story, but, but basically the story goes that she had planned on selling two of her goats to purchase the sewing machine, but the sewing machine was given to her so that she could excel faster. But instead of keeping it all for herself, she came to us and said, I want you to have two of my goats and I want them to be given to a young woman in the next village that you're working in so that she can have the same leg up that I did. And this is a 19 year old girl who spent years in the bush, likely as a child bride, who, you know, caught the vision and she became my organization's very first um, donor 
on the African continent. And, and it, it's to this day telling that story is like, if nothing else goes right in my life, that story was enough to say, you know, I've, I've been able to make an improvement on, on one person's experience and, and, you know, the rest is gravy, but um, we did that for years. And then it, it led us up to an opportunity that presented itself here at George Mason um, that, that brings us to where we are today. So we can pause here if you want to. Wow. Yes. So much pieces here, but it's interesting how they all came together. The disconnect between the epiphany of the disconnect between people and conflict seems like a sort of obvious statement, but it's one that I don't think people really make. And it can sort of lead to this apathy where, you know, like you just hear about the conflict in Ukraine. It's, but when you really think about the people, it, yeah. it, it, it changes things that they, they have agency. Then yeah. you got into that. They um, act in their own self-interests uh-huh. and uh, respect is a, is a big part of that. So giving the child soldiers a path out and uh, which is interesting yeah. that you came back to an, uh, agriculture from the uh, chickens and again and yeah. whatnot and yeah. uh, but goats this time so an economic yeah, yeah, solution yeah. uh it, it, anyways the whole path is um interesting the way it just uh, intertwines in um which which you've been able to achieve with those the, that path of thinking that sort of brought sure. you that way as well so sure. in terms of the the outcome from that meeting then but there was the the militia groups there too right was there anything that came from that or that's a good question. You know, it, it, for me, it did not. Uh, nothing came of it except that I learned that I could intrinsically and absolutely trust the the former child soldiers that had started their group with my life. You know, they told me this is the way it's going to be, and it happened exactly that way. What became of that meeting, I don't know. You know, they they do that for a living. They 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 are constantly for almost, I guess, maybe even over a decade now, engaging militia members to um, you know paint a picture for a. Um, child-free conflict. Um, but what happened was <laughs> years went by where we were sort of in this cycle of one by one providing a path out for armed group members, specifically children and, and young adults, 19, 20-year-olds. But it, it really occurred to us that like, we can't just keep doing this because there's always going to be one more going back in. Right. You know? How do we shift the mechanism of recruitment not not literal recruitment, uh, but like, th- how do we shift the the atmosphere that necessitates this type of recruitment? It's this idea of peace building, right? Where you you make joining groups less and less attractive, and you make staying out of groups and reducing recidivism more and more attractive. But we were sort of stuck, right? Like we didn't have the funding, and we the the goat thing was really appealing to the individual. And by the way, your listeners can still to this day uh, give one hundred fifty dollars, which will buy two goats. And it, it's still the amount of money that we use to, to bring one kid out of, out of the fighting groups. That's still a thing. And it's called Terry's Project. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But I got a job here at George Mason at my alma mater. And what I you know was, was doing some other things that I'm still doing. I, I lead the political leadership academy here and I teach. And it's, it's just a dream. Like I, I absolutely love being research professor here at the Carter School. Um, but we had a donor... Um, Milt Lowenstein, who is a, a fairly famous um, donor in the peacemaking world, uh, came to my dean and said, I want to investigate efficacy at the intersection 
of local and international peace building partnerships. And I want to, I want to, I want to pay money to do that. <laughs> and my dean came to me and said, does this interest you? And I literally, when I got the call, it wasn't from, from my dean, but it was from uh, another person on staff here who, who knew about this possibility, asked me this, are you interested at this intersection? I was literally reading a book <laughs> about the intersection of local oh. international peace building um, by a, a woman named Sarah Hellmuller, who is a fantastic scholar currently in Geneva. And, and I said, more than you understand, this is what I'm passionate about. Yes, please let me take this project on. So we can, we can, you know, build models of what it means to be efficient at these intersections. This is what I've been doing already with my life. And so I would love to, you know, take this on as um, research faculty here at Mason. And so they said, well, where do you want to do it? And I, I got the perfect location <laughs> and I've got the perfect people. And so there is a really well established conclusion in scholarship, in peace scholarship called the local turn where everybody recognizes that if we don't put more effort into surrendering to local ideas, that peacemaking will never, we, we're never going to grow. And we'll, we'll just kind of like systematically sustain the peace building industrial complex as it were. Right. And so like millions and billions of dollars being spent um, if we don't start making changes to how we're approaching it, because sort of this idea that, the Westerner comes in and they, they get into their up armored vehicle and they live on a compound and billions of dollars are spent, but nothing changes for 10 years. Like it's, it's clear to scholarship that it's not going to work and that we have to start to figuring out how, how to, to, to do that. But, but the challenge really is how we know why, but the question is how are we actually going to, to go about making this turn? Cause it's so much easier said than done. And what Sarah in her book, really postulates as one of the main issues is this idea that you can say that internationals are out at the front of your project, but if you don't actually turn that power over to them, the control, that they will remain somewhat decorative, right? And that if they know in the back of your mind that if they disagree with you, excuse me, if they know in the back of their mind that if they disagree with you, that they're going to lose their job or they're going to lose their funding or they're not going to get, you know, the promotion that's needed to finish the project, then they don't actually have any control at all. They're, everybody's just pretending that they're leading in order to put a local face on the, on the effort. And so Sarah really interrogates that in her book. And um, there's, there's many, many other, you know, sort of obvious pressure points that when I launched this effort at George Mason, we ran directly towards and we said, you know, given the fact that I had done all of this work for almost 12 years on a shoestring, I mean, man, I was broke when I launched my organization. I, I spent the night underneath a bench in New York City on my way back from Iraq because I had run out of money for a hotel. <laughs> you know, like, so I got really good at doing this stuff on, a, on an absolute shoestring. And so when given this opportunity with AJDC, the organization in the Congo that I work with, um, I already had all these ideas about, you know, exactly how we would do it. The idea being we actually step aside and let them do their work, that if we disagree, we absolutely make it clear to them that if, their, if, if, we, if we let them run with their idea and it fails, their job and our partnership is not in danger. We have cut way back on spending doing for $30,000 what many in the past have done for three or four or $500,000 
in the Congo. And we incorporate local uh, measurements of success. We keep the government involved, but we do not surrender to their demands for, you know, as it were, quote unquote, fees. We simply say, hey, if you're going to require all these fees, we're just not going to have the meeting. And what happens is they, they, they have the meeting anyways, which has just been incredible. So we've, we've sort of put a, an end to the uh, you know, surrendering thousands and thousands of dollars to you know, government fees. Getting women locally and not just involved, but at the front of planning as, as women exist at this nexus of the home life, the community life, and the fighting life, as many of them do go out to the groups and, and, and bear arms. Um, and employing local press. So letting locals tell their, to tell their story of local peace building so that we get the most accurate outcome of what actually has occurred. And so we put all this into place. <laughs> Some people were fairly nervous. Like, we're going to do this really differently. And, and my sincere conviction is that it's going to work because I've seen it play out time and time again, but just not this directly. And so we, we organized our first peace building dialogue where armed group members came to the table with lower level government officials, so sort of lower level representations on both ends, along with civil society. And they had a, 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 a peace dialogue that occurred over the course of four days. It didn't impress anybody because organizations are always doing this in, in the Congo. Like they're, they're always bringing people to the table. People always want to come. But, but what people don't tell you is that oftentimes these group members and government members are being paid very large sums to come uh, to the table right. and sort of pretend that they're all interested in peace, but it's sort of become like an NGO industry in NGO economy where like people count on this for income to come pretend to make peace, pretend to sign this, these sheets of paper and then they leave and they go back right back to what they're doing. What we said was we absolutely are not going to pay you almost anything. We're going to pay you a very low per diem. It's going to get you your phone cards, your taxi rides, et cetera. But if you don't want to come to this because we're not going to pay you, we don't need you here. And to everybody's shock, not only did everybody come, more people came than were even invited, <laughs> knowing that there was no profit or very low profits right. to be made uh, in this per diem. Um, mm. And what we learned because we were, you know, we there was a total lack of Westerners. Nobody, nobody from America came. I sent Remy, my guy on the ground in Africa, and he was the only outsider along with like one other person who accompanied him. Everybody else is Congolese because there was Congolese press because there were, there were Congolese people leading the meetings because people could speak directly to what was happening in civil society. All of a sudden, everything just opened, opened wide up. And we, and we, we saw as these groups said, we are tired of fighting. We don't want to do this anymore, but we have no path out. And they signed kind of a temporary agreement and we did the same thing two months later with, with all women leaders. They said the same thing, but they illuminated kind of the, the pressure points and the, the challenges that awaited any peace process. We worked on it a little bit more. We took everybody's opinions um, and we continued to refine this sort of what we're, what we're ter terming new hybridity. Hybridity is this idea, this intersection of local, international peace-building actors. Um, we continued to kind of tweak our, our methods, and then we made the big leap, and we invited armed group generals and colonels, like sort of these first and second in command, from 21 different groups, um, including a couple of groups that ambushed my team when we were there in 2019. <laughs> The very same people. <laughs> came really? To our peace, 
Yeah, I came to our peace talk. I was in Menembe, like way up in the Highlands in 2019. And there was a huge coordinated attack with like four different groups all working together, which a, a local guy there who's a big, big guy, like a big leader. He's like, I've never seen this happen before. <laughs> and I was like, wow, well, how privileged are we to, to be here to see this? This, you know, obviously sarcastically. But yeah, they came. And so government representatives from Kinshasa, like from the president's cabinet, provincial leaders, district leaders, and it was a massive undertaking. Um, but essentially, they came together and they sort of had a once and for all three day dialogue. And they signed a peace accord that both the governments and the, the every armed group leader signed, saying, here's what we're going to do next. And here, here's how we're going to pursue demobilization. Wow. So almost immediately, two of the armed groups immediately said, okay, we're coming out. Like, like just a few days later, they said, we're going to make good on this and we're ready to we're stop fighting. They went to the government. They said, are you ready to uphold your end of the deal? And to nobody's surprise, the government said, we're not ready. And, but it, and so while it was distracting and disappointing, it was not surprising. So we were ready for this. So we said, if you're ready to come out, then we're ready uh, to, to help you demobilize and reintegrate back into your communities. We will be that sort of accompanying force. And we need you, we talking to these two groups, to kind of provide the pilot process of how we're going to orchestrate this demobilization reintegration process. So if you'll be patient with us, we're going to work with you. We're going to make sure that you get what you need to go back home. And so the thing was, we didn't have a plan <laughs> because it happened so quickly and the government so quickly collapsed in. While we weren't surprised, it, it, I guess that we, we were a little bit taken aback by just how fast it all transpired. And so I said, okay, you know, this is our moment, right? Like this is the moment where we put everything into play, like our over decade of experience, our years of, of working in multiple countries, my PhD, all this training I've received, like, this is the moment where I put, I put it all up and say, what's next. Mm. And I, I had nothing, but you know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm just going to, you know what, I'm going to let this go. And, and I'm convinced that you know, something, something is going to be made apparent about how to move forward. Um, and it did. I'll spare the details about how it came about, but I was talking to my associate dean about the Marshall Plan, post-World War II Europe, where the Allies sought to rebuild post-war Europe by essentially offering economic development and infrastructural development to these countries, but allowing the countries themselves to dictate how they would go about making the investments with the one caveat that any profits that were generated from this development would be reinvested back into their own economies for, for similar public good. And to this day, from what I understand, I'm not, a, I'm not a Marshall Plan expert, but from what I understand, there's actually still money to this day in some of these economies earmarked Marshall Plan reinvestment. Mm. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, that, that's the answer. That's the answer to everything. This is not just a a means by which we can sustainably reintegrate armed group leaders. This is a way that we answer several of the challenges that have been plaguing peacemaking efforts in this region and even our own, right? Like where one of the challenges was if you give all the money to the rebel or to the armed group member, what's stopping them from just leaving? Or if you give all the money to the armed group leaders and say, distribute it, what's stopping them from just embezzling it all and, and, and nobody gets anything. If you give it all to an NGO, what's, stopping them from being, you know, weighted down 
with administrative fees and it all just sort of gets absorbed. And certainly if you give it all to the government and take their word for it, it's not, nothing will happen, right? Has been, has been shown time and time again. So what if we went to the communities, like the very place where this all starts for the disrespected young man, where he looks around and says, I don't know how I'm going to seek respect for myself. And so they leave their communities. What if we built up spaces using investments at the community level that required economic investment into village level industry that necessarily was built around economic development projects that were specifically designed for the number of young men and young women who were coming back into the villages from the groups. So there were like less than a dozen from this one group. And so we said, let's, let's think about something we can build that will benefit your entire community, but will provide 11 jobs for these people who are coming back in and will benefit everyone else in the community so that we don't have any of this sort of favoritism being played where it, it somehow is more attractive to be an armed group member and everybody else just sort of gets shunned, right? So it's a, it's a both and such that not only are the demobilized coming directly back into a job so that they have steady sources of income, which they don't have in the bush, but they are immediately looked at as productive members of society. And as a result of what the way that we're planning profitability being reinvested back into the communities like the Marshall Plan, it grows economic sustainability so that you avoid both recidivism and future recruitment back into the armed groups that started the whole thing. And so everybody's on edge right now. We're so excited because you know, at every step along the way, we refuse to be sort of the imposing force on anybody. And, and so we said, we have this idea. I told it to our partners in Congo and they loved it, but I was like, it doesn't matter if we love it. We need the villagers to, to love it. And so we put together this day long sort of town hall gathering in the village and said, here's our idea. What do you think? And what they came up with is just has been astounding. And so um, one of the groups is ready to demobilize. We're, we're sending the money over this week um, where they're going to start a, a fishing industry that focuses on fish drying and, and, and production and sales. And then we just concluded our second pilot project um, gathering, town hall gathering in another village. And to every, I get goosebumps saying this, but to everyone's elation, a third group has seen what we're doing and they said, we want to be next. Um, so there's, there's 18 more, (laughs) um, but we have every confidence that we, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too, you know, overly naive about this, but, but I think there's a really good shot that a majority of these groups are going to, are going to quit and come back to, uh, to their normal life in this part of South Cuba. So that's where we're at. Wonderful. uh, Yeah. Well, so maybe we can zoom in just so I understand how it's playing out. Like, so you, you came up with the idea at the start, we're transferring overall control. That's probably money and funds. Uh, women need to be involved, uh, local press measurements of success. So you had this sort of framework. Then mm-hmm. did you create a body when you get into the nitty gritty, like who's convening the, the groups, who's running yeah. that meeting? I'm, I'm just curious. Um, yeah. How, how that all worked out. That's a great question. Um, so the original group that called me and said, come meet the militia members. That group of child soldiers, they proved themselves so in, like highly effective, transparent, and full of integrity that I've never stopped working with them. So I called them and said, do you want to do this? And if, if so, how? And so don't be mistaken. This, like, this, um, so much of this was not only their idea, but the actual execution on the ground is, is them. Right. I 
I, we stay completely out of it. Um, so yeah, they've been our, uh, our people on the ground for seven years now. So you just turn over all control and um, are, are they ever looking for guidance or input or are they just sort of off doing their thing and <laughs> you're sort of, yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And, and I think a point that has to be truly clarified. No, we, we don't just write them checks and say, best of luck. Yeah. Um, it is a constant dialogue, weekly, day, sometimes daily, back and forth, where the word, the verb that I use is accompaniment, uh, accompany. Um, we accompany them and we, we help brainstorm. We bring ideas. I mean, we, we still have a fantastic team of you know, people who have PhDs and like all this other stuff who know peace building, right? So it's not like we stay totally out of it. We simply say, you're on equal footing. We're on equal footing. You're the ones living in the conflict. Uh, we're the ones who have been invited by you to accompany you. So we bring as much as we can bring as far as networking, ideas, skills, uh, peace building philosophies, and, and say, hey, here, here, here's what we think. What do you think? And it comes down to like, I mean, like nitty gritty stuff sometimes where we went back and forth like three days about how we would, how we would per just this one plane ticket from this guy in Kinshasa. Um, so it's, it's, it is a true partnership, but one that um, is ultimately uh, modeled on this idea that, that, that it is actually equal and not just, we're not just pretending that it is. Right. In terms of that DDR, the uh, Marshall plan, is there any documentation on that? If people wanted to look more into the specifics of that, or I'm assuming it's so young and early that you're not quite there yet, but um, yeah, we, we actually developed this after you invited me to do this podcast um, the first time. So, you know, it's very young. We are, but it is, it is sort of the, uh, I would say keystone of my academic pursuits right now. So there will be lots written about it. Can we shift into general advice? Um, anything here, maybe for those looking to get into the field or for those already involved in peace building projects or other processes, maybe um, the, the mindset needed for dealing with the ups and downs, any, any final advice or anything you want to add before we wrap up? I would say that for those who are looking at working directly in international um, conflict resolution and, and work that I'm doing, um, a, I don't recommend necessarily doing what I did because it, uh, it, in my early years, because it, it, it can be rather dangerous. <laughs> so I'm not promoting that whatsoever. But but B, um, do do take a good amount of time to just shut up and listen. And, and I don't say that you know aggressively. I, I'm saying literally, just pause and and go find the humanity that exists in these places and, and always has and lean into that and listen to what is being said, because this whole thing is not, it doesn't have to be as complicated as people make it out to be. There are human beings who are experiencing conflict at their levels in their villages, among their families who have, they, they live with this daily. They go to sleep with it on their mind. They wake up and, and the moment that they regain their consciousness, they remember what they're dealing with. And so peace, already exists in the minds of these individuals who are experiencing it. It is our job as outsiders to live curiously. Um, and, and that's, that's a word that my Dean has promoted often. Um, if we will live curiously with, with solutions existing at the other end of curiosity, what it does is it, is it humbles us as outsiders to submit to the idea that the solutions exist outside of our own minds 
and that it's our job to go find them and to amplify and accompany rather than deliver. And if we can do that, it really not only is going to make everything more effective and cost efficient, but it also answers the, the other question you talked about with um, kind of the psychological and the mental um, burdens that come along with this. Um, because the moment that you're allowed, that you allow yourself to sort of open your open your hand and say, you know, this this can fly away if it wants to, but if it stays, it's going to be great. You release all the tension of that constant need to protect. And um, what you see is that the moment we're able to let go, that's when everything starts to grow and flourish, just like a baby bird or something, you know? And, and so that's my advice uh, is, is to listen. Yeah. Getting curious, surrendering to that idea that there's another solution outside of ourselves. That's good um, general negotiation and mediation principles as well. So thanks for that. Before we go, um, can you tell us more about was it Carrie's project and, and where people can find you if they want to know about uh, you and your work? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So there's a few different things going on here. So George Mason University's Carter School is, is where I am employed full-time. Um, and what we're doing with these peace dialogues and now community reintegration projects, we are actually reproducing. The thing I haven't told you about is that these wor- ideas are working so well that the donor has given us money to go do this again in another country. And I won't say where yet because we're not quite finished, but we have a pretty solid idea. Um, so if you want to give directly to this program, the Carter School is ready to um, to receive investments in this process where we continue to sort of build out this model of this new hybridity. Um, we have a goal of $5 million and we've, we've raised a million of it. Um, so there's all kinds of space. And, and I'm talking about if you, if you want to invest $1,000, it's going to make a huge difference in this. Um, my organization uh, outside of George Mason's Innovations in Peacebuilding International, um, innovationsinpeacebuilding.com is our website. Um, there you can donate to what we're doing outside of this project, um, specifically Terry's project. So Terry was the original, yeah, T-H-I-E-R-R-Y. He was the original um, child com- former child combatant that reached out to me in 2015 and said, we want to talk to you. Um, he's the, he is one of the few young people that were living that life in the militia and said, I want something different for myself. And so he left and started an NGO that um, could affect change in all of his you know, fellow child combatants, uh, giving them that choice, reasserting their agency over their life. Um, he worked so incredibly hard and, and faced so many challenges financially, nutritionally, but, but m- I guess more tragically um, risks to his safety physically when people would threaten him because his work was effective. Um, his heart stopped when he was 31 years old. He died of a heart attack um, because of the stress that was on his body um, for so long. He left behind a widow and, um, and, and children um, who have since kind of been adopted by that community um, as a family. And they're actually building them a house right now. If anybody out there, this is sort of a side thing, but if, if you're interested in helping them finish uh, her house, um, it's a cr- it's a crazy low amount. But more, I guess, more broadly, we named our efforts with the goats and child combatants. Mm-hmm. We we re sort of re approached it, where our goal now is that there will be zero child combatants in the province of South Kivu before we're finished. 
we've named it Terry's project because this is what he was so incredibly passionate about. And um, for $150, we buy two goats and we, we go up, I say we, they go up into the bush and, and they bring one child soldier out of the fighting groups and, and um, prepare them for a sustainable life outside of the fighting groups. Um, the hope is that we will do this so many times that there will be no child soldiers left as we create those sort of safer environments through our other work to come home to. And, and this is a shockingly low amount of, of kids. We're not talking tens or twenties of thousands. We're, we're talking about a number that is kind of in the, in the low thousands. So we are absolutely determined to finish out Terry's life goal in that. And if anybody wants to get involved, they can contact me or go online and donate 150 bucks. We're going to know what it's for um, because it's a really overt uh, process. Really great initiatives. The, the, the house building, how would someone get involved in that if they were so inclined the um yeah sorry that was kind of random uh and i i didn't even intend to bring it up but it was just on my heart so yeah terry's widow and their children need a place to live because he's not there anymore providing for them um i think the remaining need like the community got together and like they started it but they sort of like they just ran out of funding i think they need like three thousand more dollars and it's going to finish an entire house for this family in the congo and give them a place to live forever so if, if anybody's interested in getting involved at any amount i mean even if it's like 25 dollars, we're going to send it over without any fees or anything like that we everything will get sent um they can go online and donate at innovationsofpeacebuilding.org and and just earmark it terry's terry's family's house or something that alludes to that and we'll make sure every single dollar gets gets sent over now and it's like a need right now like they're currently waiting until this is finished so well, thanks for uh, mentioning that. I guess yeah. we'll wrap up there. I mean, congratulations um, for all this. It's it's so positive and such a great success story. So um, thank you for, for sharing with us today. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more from international experts digging into a range of topics on conflict, power, and persuasion, subscribe to your favorite podcast app or visit us at cn.org. That's C-I-I-A-N dot O-R-G.